This is Pain Information Network. Might surprise you, but we're, yeah, we're at another conference. This one's really a lot of fun. This is the American Society of Addiction Medicine. And we're in New Orleans. That's a pretty fun city, too. So we went out to dinner. And Sandy Silverman and I have the pleasure and honor of speaking at this meeting. And we have had the opportunity to get together with some really thrilling folks. Hi, Bobby Kearney. I appreciate all your input out there. A friend of mine from my neck of the woods who is deep in deep with addiction and doing it right. And we went out to dinner with a Michael Sucher, MD, Chief Medical Officer, Community Bridges at Pennington Place. That's a, a really important pain and addiction center that is in Mesa, Arizona, and Michael Miller. He's uh, up there in Wisconsin and doing a great job at Rogers Memorial Hospital. So we had the opportunity to sit down with these folks, and, man, did they give us perspective. Sandy said it best. He said, uh, you know, we do pain and addiction. These folks do addiction than pain. And when you put these two together, we yeah, we all have common threads. That's a common nuance we use. But the fact of the matter is uh, we can learn from each other, and we did that night. So this is a fun one, and I'm going to let you get to it and listen to these folks. They really they gave us some perspective, and we enjoyed the heck out of it. So here we go. I have with me today Michael Miller, M.D. We're at a dinner, uh, American Society of Addiction Medicine, and we're having a great discussion. I think we've opened the door on some very fascinating topics. Dr. Miller, tell me a little bit about yourself. Where are you from? Where are you practicing? Uh, Well, I'm a Louisiana native who, uh, since medical school graduation, has lived in Wisconsin, uh, uh, except for a couple years of training in Minnesota where I did uh, my fellowship. Uh, I was the first... Uh, addiction fellow at the University of Minnesota, and there have been a hundred or more in the last 35 years. But after a couple years of training in Minnesota, returned to Wisconsin. I've been in practice there since 1983. So I do addiction medicine, and for the last seven years, I've done that at Rogers Memorial Hospital that's headquartered in Oconomowoc, Wisconsin, which is outside of Milwaukee. Okay, there's our connection. My dad's from Tomahawk, Wisconsin. There you go. Okay, we go to the Tomahawk uh, Frontier Days all the time, or whatever it's called. But it's July 4th, great time. People got to go. If you haven't been, go. I love Wisconsin. Okay, so we were talking a little bit about buprenorphine. Tell me a little bit about buprenorphine, your experiences, and the theme of what we were just talking about, which is social lifestyle for most of these folks that have trouble with addiction. Well... Uh, I think buprenorphine is a is a tremendous drug. Uh, I think it's just a wonderful therapeutic agent to treat addiction. Uh, and uh, I was one of a group of addiction doctors in the early and mid-2000s who probably felt like the psychiatrists did in the early 70s when lithium came out. And we felt like, my God, we have a wonder drug we can use. And patients were extremely grateful, and they would come in and say, thank you, thank you, you've changed my life. And... Uh, as I've always said, that the, that the most common thing that patients would say when they were placed on buprenorphine is they would use the N-word. And I'd say, oh, really? And they would say, doctor, I feel normal. I didn't think I could ever feel normal again. So it's a, it's a tremendous therapeutic agent. And the other thing that's absolutely fascinating with it, one of the many things that's fascinating with it, is that the patients would report, 
I feel like I did before I had addiction. So it does something to the brain to restore normalcy. It stabilizes all sorts of neurotransmitters and, and areas of brain function so that people emotionally feel better, their energy is better, they're not high, they're not over the top, and they just feel normal. So it's a tremendous, tremendous medicine that is an opioid. And so when it first came on the market, there had been experience with buprenorphine in France. Uh, we were all taught that it is a abusable drug. It's something you can get high on if you use it episodically. And it's a divertible drug. And so when it first came out, there was virtually no diversion in America. And we were all enjoying all the benefits of what a wonderful therapeutic agent it was. And there's been an evolution of patients and addiction since buprenorphine was available in 2003. So we're 14 years down the pike, and there's different phases of it that I've observed. And, um, and uh, so maybe you want to make some comments or ask some questions, but uh, um, it's, I, I think it's, we're at a different place we were than in, in 2003, and, and I'm, I'm disappointed in that because it is such a wonderful therapeutic agent. All right. All right. I know. Good and bad. Sandy Silverman sitting next to me. Sandy, get him talking about that provocative discussion we had talking just a minute ago. Then I'm going to introduce a couple others that I think are going to be fantastic. So uh, buprenorphine makes you feel normal, which is what we've experienced with our patients. It's a wonderful drug, non-euphorogenic, powerful analgesic. Uh, it, um, it, it, it suppresses withdrawal. But what we've heard is that some patients will integrate that with their heroin addiction. So why would somebody do that if they felt normal on buprenorphine all the time? And why would they go start buying heroin and, you know, alternating between the two? Perfect. Okay, take it from there. Well, I would say that the people that we were talking about before we set up the microphone tonight were people who had never known recovery and had never felt normal on buprenorphine maintenance therapy. These are people who had active addiction, not always heroin or fentanyl, could be pharmaceuticals like oxycodone or hydrocodone or hydromorphone. So these were folks who had addiction and they heard from their peer group on the street different stories. And, of course, there's a lot of folklore out there, but there's also a lot of amazing natural experiments and real science that they would share with each other, real stories. And so these were folks who never fit the pattern of the addiction patient from the mid-2000s who had wonderful, wonderful stability. They were on buprenorphine maintenance. They weren't using illicit opioids. They weren't relapsing. They'd stay on it for two years and say, Doctor, please don't take me off of this. I want to be a lifer because I feel so good and I'm terrified of going off this wonderful drug. And so it sounds like you have a lot of experience in your practice with that kind of patient who has a great therapeutic response. The people that I was talking about are people who have never gotten there. They have active addiction. They're not ready for recovery. They're not ready to stop. 
but they've heard tales about, oh, hey, there's something you can do here. There's a, there's a method you can use that's got some benefits, and let me tell you about it. And then they try it out for themselves, and it works, and here's what happens. This is not the person who prefers to use heroin, happens to run out of heroin, and then wants to get buprenorphine as an opioid withdrawal management agent from the black market. This is not that patient who, after they get through their withdrawal, if they can just get back to their heroin, they will as quick as possible, and that's fine. This is a different population who have woven buprenorphine into the fabric of their addiction. And they plan to use heroin less than 30 days a month, maybe 20, maybe 18. And then what they do on the other days is they have buprenorphine that may come from the black market. Let's just say it does. But they're very, very sophisticated understanding the pharmacology. They understand the half-lives and the washouts in both directions. And so when their heroin runs out or when they choose to stop buying heroin, they have a buprenorphine supply. They get out to 14, 18 hours, begin to feel uncomfortable, take buprenorphine. <clears throat> they take that first dose and they're comfortable, and they may stay on it for a day or two or maybe even three. And then they transition back to heroin. They know that if they use heroin instantly, their receptors are blocked, so it's not going to work, so they're not going to waste it. They know exactly what the half-lives are, and then they'll resume their heroin use. And so these are people that have never had recovery and don't want it yet. And, and, they, and, and so they end up being people who use heroin. It's controlled addiction. It's a, it's a fascinating kind of addiction. And so for 18 or 20 days a month or 22 days a month, they're using their drug, which, again, could be Opana, could be right. any, any opioid, could be heroin. Um, but the buprenorphine becomes their friend, and it becomes a facilitating thing. And... If they have a legal prescription for buprenorphine, then the, the cost to them is obviously much less than black market buprenorphine. If they have commercial insurance, they'll have a copay. If they have Medicaid, their copay is extremely small. And so they'll get a 30-day supply. Now, if they go see a doctor and they provide a history, it's obvious to the doctor they have addiction. It's obvious to the doctor they may be a candidate for what's called medication-assisted treatment, a term I don't particularly care for. So they could be on agonist, partial agonist therapy. Doctor goes, I got the case, I got the history, I got medical necessity, clear as a bell, prescribe buprenorphine. Um, the patients will tell the doctor whatever they want to tell the doctor, and they say, oh, this, patient, this doctor is great, doctor, this is, I had a great month, okay? And then they um, make sure that they don't um, use uh, an illicit substance before their appointment time for their revisit. So if they have to drop a urine, it will only have buprenorphine in it. They will take buprenorphine so they have the proper ratios of parent compound and metabolite. They'll look great. Over a period of time, they appear to be stable, and the doctor authorizes them 30-day supplies. They don't need 30-day supplies. They're using heroin half the month. That prescription is like legal tender. It gives them something that is extremely valuable, so they can sell it to buy food. They can sell it to... 
you know, buy iTunes, they can sell it to pay their cell phone bill, or they can trade it for heroin or for cocaine or for marijuana or for anything. So um, physicians not understanding the culture of this do everything right by the books. They give a 30-day supply. Part of it is used medically. Part of it is diverted. And the patient rolls along, doesn't have overdoses. Well, they may. They could have an overdose, obviously, if there's a synthetic that's put in there or any other accident that happens in the life of a person with addiction involving heroin. But the buprenorphine has become interwoven and behaviorally, culturally, for them, it is not a pathway to recovery. It is not a maintenance pharmacotherapy to keep them stable. For them, it's enabling, it's facilitating, and it's part of their addiction. And that is very, very tragic because, for me, it eliminates buprenorphine as a reasonable therapeutic option for them because you you can't get them to take it in the right way. And um, and I think I think one option is to take that person and put them into an OTP on buprenorphine because then they don't have any supplies. But you know, if they're not ready, if if they're not if they're not ready to change, they're not going to go to that OTP. They're not going to go on daily buprenorphine. This is somebody who has a really serious illness and doesn't have the readiness to change and has been extremely creative and has used a marvelous product from medical science in a way very much not intended by the manufacturer. Okay, you brought up some really good points there. Ready to change. You know, they're beyond contemplation. They're ready to go. And you heard from Sandy, you know, some comments. I'll let Sandy say some comments. But I also want uh, Dr. Michael Sucher. And uh, did I pronounce that correct? Sucher. Sucher. Oh, I'm so sorry. Just met him tonight. but I've been called worse. Uh, yeah, well, got it. From Community Bridges. Your first name is my middle name. But it, you threw it, you threw in some good comments about that. It's not everybody. It's not everybody that has this problem, is it? Well, you know, I think Dr. Miller is right. That, that these are people that we're talking about that really don't want recovery. They're really trying to stay out of trouble and manage uh, their addiction using these medications. And I, I mean, I can tell you. Uh, I also worked in an OTP where we do outpatient buprenorphine, but these are typically maintenance people who get a 30-day supply. And in the issue of uh, trying to avoid diversion, uh, we've been reducing doses. Most people believe that all of the receptors are full at 16 milligrams or uh, at, at the highest. We have some people on higher doses than that. We believe they're selling, doing exactly what Michael's talking about. And the other thing is that, you know, all of these active addicts, the people who really don't want recovery, have to have some way of convincing themselves that they're not an addict. And so by using buprenorphine part of the time and only using heroin some of the time, well, I'm not really an addict. Or, you know, because think about people, if you go back years, well, I don't inject drugs. I only take prescribed medications, so I can't be an addict. You know, if I was using heroin, I'd be an addict. And then, of course, you know, now, because we're seeing such an opioid epidemic and such a rash of overdoses and young people dying, you know, we're now seeing wide availability of naloxone or Narcan, uh, 
uh, to be used. And the, the phenomenon that I'm seeing, and I think Dr. Miller mentioned that as well, is people who, much like you have a designated driver at a party who won't drink and everybody else uh, can drink to their heart's content, we now have people who can sit around and shoot up heroin uh, and overdose having a designated naloxone person there to save them, so to speak. So it's, again, much like we were talking about, here you have medications that were really designed to help people and restore them to functionality and feeling normal, and it's being abused and being used in a way that it was never intended. Yeah, Tell, tell us about yourself because you've got a number of clinics. And also introduce a young lady to your right because uh, – all right, I want to jump in here. Suzanne has some tremendous anecdotes. I loved how she just made it so down to earth and very straightforward. And I'm really happy that she jumped on this podcast. So listen carefully. This is somebody with wisdom. And it was a fun roundtable. She's intimate into your clinics, and uh, we're happy to have her tonight. Thank you very much. I'm the uh, Chief Medical Officer of Community Bridges. It's a nonprofit statewide network in Arizona that provides mental health, substance abuse, and integrated care services. And so we've been on the front lines of this for a very long time. We were very early adopters of buprenorphine as well. Uh, so that's uh, much of what I do. And this is Dr. Suzanne Tarleton, who's a clinical psychologist who is an expert in uh, addiction and trauma. Yes, and uh, I just wanted to add something because in my experience, 30 years working with addicts, addicts don't really like feeling normal. They want to feel better than normal. Normal is something for other people so uh and also with the buprenorphine you mentioned as a friend well sometimes a friend is just a time out to you until you get to the lover heroin and narcotics are the lover so that also makes the reunion that much better And so that is a psychological process to take the time out and then you boost again because that getting together, getting the drug, that's a part of the high is the ritual and the thinking about using. And also when you're, when you have to go and, and say spend a week with your parents, you don't want to be nodding out. (laughs) Buprenorphine is something that you can sit at the dinner table and have dinner and conversation with grandma who's going to give you the check, and then you're going to go buy some heroin. So that's my comment. Thank you. Do you have anything else to say? All right, Sandy, you want to end it up here? And uh, I can tell you, you always end it up right. Well, so... uh, you know, Hans and I are the pain docs who do a little addiction, and you guys are the addiction docs that do a little bit of pain. So now the entire construct has been flipped on its head, and we have a lot of thinking to do. So if we try to come up with a solution for these people, it seems to me that the only solution is to not use medication-assisted withdrawal. Is that? But we also know that when you 
give opioid antagonists to this population, they're probably going to be non-compliant. So do we have a recalcitrant disease that we can't treat ever? That's the question. And, you know, we, we, we're, we're really I – th- I think this is really good cutting-edge stuff because the government is lagging behind on this. Uh, the legal system's lagging behind in this. We have people like, uh, you know, Newt Gingrich going on Fox News saying, you know, buprenorphine is the greatest thing in the world. We need medication-assisted withdrawal. We have the Obama administration just passed 275 patients. Are we really, like, <laughs> are we really slitting our necks here in, in this patient population? Another good question I would ask is that what percentage of those patients are doing that? What do you think the percentage is in your whole addiction population who are integrating buprenorphine in a daily lifestyle to just keep on using? Well, let me make a, a couple of comments. Uh, you know, because you brought up the number 275 patients, and as and as, as all of you know, uh, to well, as some of you may know and some of you may not know, uh, to prescribe buprenorphine products to treat opioid addiction, you have to have a waiver from the Drug Enforcement Administration. Uh, when you initially get this waiver, which up until recently was only physicians who could get a waiver, now it's being slowly expanded to physician assistants and nurse practitioners, but you were limited to 30 patients at a time. Uh, after once the drug was available on a fairly widespread basis, they allowed physicians who had a year or more experience to bump up to 100. And now if you have meet certain parameters to prevent diversion and do quality improvement and you work in an organization that accepts insurance and you've had the 100 waiver for one year, you can be uh, granted a, a waiver to treat 275 patients. But remember, much of this treatment is for opiate addicts that physicians created. And so, you know, what sort of I find chagrinning is that we have a disease of addiction that is probably the number one health problem in the United States. I mean, we are a small percent of the world's population, and yet we use a huge percentage of the world's drug supply, uh, that physicians can treat an unlimited number of patients with an unlimited amount of opioids for an unlimited amount of time. And yet those of us who dedicate our career to helping people who've gotten that disease, much of it iatrogenic, are limited in how many people we can treat. And I think that's the shame. I think that this is a wonderful drug for opioid addiction for many people, and most people do well in my experience with it. We're talking about a group of people that either we probably see in small numbers or don't even know we're seeing, or they never come to us because they're getting these drugs on the street. And what would you at, that the that are that small percentage that's doing what well, the the question was, I think, what was the percentage of people who are kind of still in active addiction and maybe pretending to want recovery to get legitimate prescriptions? In in my experience, I, and and I've been doing this uh, buprenorphine maintenance for quite a number of years. Probably ten percent would be my estimate. Now, Michael, I don't know if you have a different thought. Michael, here you go. I, I work in a um, in a residential rehab co-ed, uh, only 20 beds, uh, 
but the 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 big change that's happened with has been with uh, the patient population based on the Affordable Care Act and people being able to be treated under their parents' insurance up to age 26. And so this group of people with addiction ages 18 to 25 who never were there before because they were uninsured, they were unemployed, they didn't have employer-based health insurance, they weren't eligible for Medicaid, now they have their parents' insurance. And so they're able to come in. And so it's really changed the demographics of treatment. But I would say in the last several years... Uh, of the folks who come come in who have addiction involving opioids, um, a lot of them have buprenorphine experience, and they will tell stories about obtaining buprenorphine from illicit sources, and they'll tell stories about prescriptions they had, and then they'll tell the story about how they've used buprenorphine. Now, if somebody gives me a story of, my God, I was on buprenorphine, I took it for 18 months, uh, I was really stable, I had a good doctor, everything was fine, uh, then they've known recovery, and they've known what we were discussing earlier, uh, that, that uh, it made me feel normal again, or made me feel like I was before I ever took um, an opioid, never before I developed addiction. Those people are a good candidate for maintenance therapy because they've had an experience with it that's been really positive, and they say, you want to you have that experience again? And they say, sure. <clears throat> but then there's another group of people that have never had that, and their use of buprenorphine has always been really sketchy. And some of them fit the scenario that I pres- described. And I would say that uh, it's really grown in my patient population, and it's grown to 20%, it's grown to 30%. Uh, I'm not quite sure if it's grown to 40% of all the people that come into my residential rehab whose addiction involves opioids. And these are people where I really feel like I just go, darn, you know, I've got this great, great option that just, I just don't think it's a feasible option for them. And it's really changed my practice. And I feel like by default I've had to move over to the uh, naltrexone preparations, I think it was mentioned that the oral naltrexone proper preparations have virtually no adherence long-term. So uh, they have to use the long-term injectable naltrexone product. But um, uh, it's, it's, it's shifted my pharmacotherapy in the direction of naltrexone. Um, I'm not happy about it. It's just the way it is. Uh, my job is to help somebody be stable and stay alive and get functional in their families again. And when I feel like the buprenorphine isn't the option that I had when a patient walked in my office in 2005, you know, I'm disappointed, but it happens so frequently now that I don't stay in that state very long. I stay in that state a few seconds and then just move on to what I have to do practically to make a a treatment plan work for somebody. So it, it it is sad how this has evolved. And I can't say that when the medication first came to America in 2003, we could have predicted exactly this. I don't think that people in France could have predicted this. But this is what's happened with our population, with our addiction prevalence, with our availability of buprenorphine through commercial insurance and Medicaid. This is just kind of where we've come to at the end of the, of the second decade of the 21st century. So... Um, uh, again, I, I don't think that anybody who practices addiction medicine full-time listening to this will find anything that's really controversial or sounds crazy. I think that probably 
practitioners in the community throughout the nation are seeing this sort of phenomenon. Now, we discussed over dinner tonight that maybe this isn't known outside of the core of full-time addiction practitioners, and maybe it's not known by policymakers, or maybe it's not known by other people. Um, but it's sort of what I've come to understand is the is the landscape. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm glad you found it enlightening to kind of hear these stories of the real world that I live in and that I see. And, uh, Mike, you're not seeing the... You said it's only 10% of your population. I think it's a little bit higher than mine, actually, in the young adults that I see. My my practice that I'm speaking of personally is mostly outpatient buprenorphine and an OTP population and environment. And I think most of those individuals have functional lives, they have families, they have jobs, they have their health, and and they are functioning. I think about 10% of them are really diverting and using in ways such as we have talked about. But, you know, I I really look and approach uh, opioid addiction uh, really with all of the arms that are available, which includes buprenorphine products, which is what we've mostly been speaking of, but also naltrexone as well, uh, also uh, methadone when that's appropriate, and abstinence uh, when that can work, which I think personally is the preferred way, but it's not a way that works for the majority of people we're seeing. And so I think we try and offer every option in terms of the appropriate treatment based on the individual, their situation, their age, their chronicity, their other co-occurring issues. Uh, we deal with the whole issue of benzodiazepines. Uh, so it is a, uh, uh, you know, it's complicated, but uh, I don't think I see the percentage you do. I think you see them in the residential setting where maybe they've hit a roadblock and uh, that's brought them to that level of care, too. Well, I appreciate everybody's uh, input. Let me give you some background. When I first got into pain medicine, which is the Wild West days, um, in the late 80s, uh, I feel that way addiction is today. Um, I actually did a slide for a long-acting oxycodone preparation, who will remain nameless, um, that said it had no ceiling effect, had very little street value, was not really that addictive, and was superior. And guess what? happened. Just the opposite of what we ever thought would happen. Enter the opioid crisis. So um, we are going to avoid this repeat problem with the buprenorphine issues. And these two gentlemen and young lady, thank you so much for your input. Fantastic information. Um, And uh, Sandy, you got to close it out. Say something. Well, I think... uh I guess in the addiction world, this is kind of known, but in the policy world, it's not because they're lagging behind. And unfortunately, if what I'm seeing, what I'm hearing tonight comes to fruition, as we increase the number of buprenorphine providers with mid-levels and we increase the just the the just the dispensing of buprenorphine this is going to get worse okay and where it becomes to the point where we've just pushed medication assisted treatment to the point where well we just got to make it so prevalent and so available 
that we're going to miss this part, miss this subtle point of about enabling an addiction. In other words, making addiction workable in some ways, which is to me it really new. I really hadn't heard about this too before, and uh, it's it's something I think we really need to think about. Um, I don't know if we have an answer, but you know, it doesn't. It seems to me, no matter what we do, we can come up with the best drug, buprenorphine, buprewat, slaptafini, whatever it is. 10% of the population is going to be addicted no matter what we do. And we just can't stop it. Okay? We, it just seems that we're just trying to hold it at bay. So, All right. Unless uh, anybody else has something to say, anybody else want to contribute? Okay. Speaking of addiction, I'll see you at Starbucks in the morning. Yeah, I told you that these, these folks really kind of do a little whipsaw for us so we learn from them and we appreciate their input and tomorrow we get to talk and carry forward our message sandy and i believe that there is so much in common with pain and addiction that we uh, talk on the same level with folks and have a good conversation where we all can get together and do the best for our patients and give them the best possible outcome And that's what it's all about, the right thing for the right reasons. So go to paininformation.com. Please leave a message. And that's why we're doing this stuff is um, because you wanted us to, and we appreciate it. Having a ball, and I'm going to do another one tomorrow and get that out in the next uh, couple of weeks. And American Society of Interventional Pain Physicians annual meeting is coming up. Rudy Giuliani will be there. And I'm going to tell you that the top pain people that you could ever dream of are going to be there. So you're going to get some good information. And then I'm going to Florida Society of Interventional Pain Physicians meeting, and that's uh, Sandy. Sandy was a, a president, and uh, he really has got a, a circle around him that adds a tremendous amount of value to any pain knowledge. And this is the real stuff. This isn't fluffy stuff. So I'm going to give you the uh, best I can over the next couple of weeks because this is lecture season. So, all right, stick with us. We'll see you soon.